0: Hey everybody, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast Podcast Network. I'm your host, Stefan Cox. This week is our 150th episode and our three-year anniversary, and we will kick things off with Indivisible co-founder Ezra Levin. On the heels of the GOP Senate voting to acquit Trump, Indivisible is launching the Payback Project, a campaign directed at unseating nine GOP senators in 2020. And there is very much a role for us to play here at home in Washington. Then in a special segment, we talk about anxiety and memoir writing with Courtney Hammeister, author of the very funny book chronicling her experiences with anxiety okay fine whatever all that we have our weekly call to action and I will just mention I'm a little rough in my voice this week but stick with me and stay with us so the events surrounding the impeachment trial have been distressing in the extreme so I thought listeners could stand to hear from our friend indivisible co-executive director Ezra Levin to talk about the path forward from here hey Ezra
1: hey great to be here.
0: So, you know, people all over the country are angry about what has happened in the impeachment trial. Uh, some people I know are very worried about the future of the country. I will note that we are recording on Tuesday before the Senate is all but certain to acquit Trump. I'll just start by asking, what is the mood in D.C. right now?
1: You know, I think the the mood in the progressive community is something akin to grim determination. I think uh, over the course of the last three years, there's been hope that that something somewhere within our existing democratic, small d democratic institutions would stand up and actually confront Trump and actually act as an accountable force on him. Uh, You know, we had hoped that maybe Mueller would help. We had hoped that Republican House members might help. We would hope that Republican senators might see the light. We had hoped that maybe uh, Chief Justice John Roberts would um, use his uh, institutional power and what we've seen again and again and again is that there is no knight on a white horse riding in to save american democracy that yeah. the only thing that is going to work is if people demand it and the reason that we got to the point where we are this week with a vote to convict or acquit the president of the united states who has been impeached is because none of those folks came to our rescue but People around the country stood up and took back the House of Representatives, and then they spent much of 2019 urging their newly elected Democratic representatives to actually hold the president accountable. That's that's how we got to where we are today. That worked. What's clear this week is that the only thing that is going to work going forward is more of that. The only pathway forward is retaking the presidency is taking the Senate and then rewriting the rules so that Trump 2.0 can't take hold of the reins of power.
0: Yeah, I think uh, we're the white knight, ultimately, yeah. is is what you're saying. And I, I want to talk about uh, some of the plans that Indivisible has on both of those fronts. But, you know, I will just ask you to expand a little bit more uh, on on your thoughts here. I don't think that many of us believe that Trump would ever be convicted by the Senate, uh, but specifically the way the trial went down without witnesses or documents. You called this in a Twitter thread a disastrous day for democracy. Talk about why.
1: You know, early on in the, the Trump presidency, I read a, a book called How Democracies Die. Um, and it was a, a book by a couple of Harvard political scientists yeah. looking at the way that democracies ultimately uh, crumble. and. The, the lack of um, respect for norms uh, or tradition or even laws that this president has isn't in and of itself that alarming. We knew from the very, very beginning of the founding of this country that we weren't always going to have enlightened statesmen at the helm. That was something that was part of the founder's vision. It was built into our system of government, and the the particular feature of our system of government that was um, built up to protect against that was the separation of powers. Uh, and the assumption was that, yes, you might have a president that goes off the rails. You might have a Supreme Court justice that is trying to make laws themselves. You might have a, 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 an individual House member, or several, or senators who who um, aren't committed to the same constitutional values. But by having these separated powers, by Having different ambitious people in these positions of power, they would check each other. Um, and the distressing thing about the moment we're in right now is not that Donald Trump is a wannabe authoritarian. Um, that that is a, a predictable outcome uh, that was almost certainly going to happen at some point, and arguably has happened in the past in American history. The distressing thing is that there is, for all practical purposes not any sort of substantive opposition to this wannabe authoritarianism right. from elected republicans in congress and the the vote that should really just shake us to the core that that it that this is a problem of trump is this vote on witnesses we are not talking about a vote uh, for or against the president himself we're not talking about convicting or acquitting him We're talking about should the Senate follow the same norms around impeachment that it has followed for every single one of the 15 impeachment cases that have been brought before it in American history. And for the first time in American history, Republicans rallied around each other and the president, who has clearly committed these crimes, and said no. It's not just that we're supporting him. It's that we don't even want to look at the evidence. So this vote just makes so clear to me and I think many others that this problem stopped being about Trump long ago. And it started being about this reactionary extremist modern Republican Party that has no commitment to democratic values. And that is laser focused. Not just on protecting Trump, but on entrenching their own power, which is backed by a minority of voters who are increasingly isolated, increasingly conservative and white, and do not represent the increasingly diverse and unequal electorate in Congress. And so that... That is why I said this is a disastrous day for democracy because I think what we're seeing is a pretty fundamental breakdown that is accelerating under this president and not just by this president but by his supporters in Congress. And so the only solution to that, the only thing you can do to fight back against that is to retake power. They are not going to listen to reason. Mitch McConnell isn't going to wake up tomorrow or next year or the year after that and suddenly say, you know what? I was wrong. And the reason he's not going to do that is because he's winning. He is winning right now, and the only – so what we have to do is simply take his power away, and for the time being, we do still live in a democratic republic, which means that in a few months, citizens around the country are going to be able to vote. And with that vote, they're going to be able to choose whether we've got a Senate majority leader, Mitch McConnell, or a Democratic Senate majority leader in 2021. And I think that's going to make all the difference. I completely
0: agree. In fact, I agree with everything that you said. And and the premise for, uh, I think, a lot of people's fear is exactly what you laid out, that there just doesn't seem to be any sort of accountability that is keeping this president reined in. One would imagine, you know, the GOP knew that over 70 percent of Americans wanted documents and witnesses. And so the only thing that I can guess at this point is that McConnell is just gambling that people will forget about all of this by November. And so it's our job to make sure that they don't. So uh, Indivisible has launched something called the Payback Project. This is aimed at unseating nine GOP senators. So first, just tell us who these senators are and, and how you chose them.
1: Yeah, we're really, really excited about this project because I think what we felt and I know what a lot of indivisible members and others felt immediately after this vote was this is just so egregious. What what can we do about this? And we um, what we saw clearly was, well, we can retake the Senate. That is what we can do. If we want to actually stop this decline in our democracy. Yes, we've got to be Trump, but that's not enough. We've got to retake the Senate. And so we picked out uh, nine Republican senators who are up for re-election this year, specifically those in states where it looks like we might have a really good shot to take these seats. And some of them are more reaches than others, but I think we've got a shot in every single one of these states. We don't have to take all of them in order to win the Senate. We only have to take uh, at, at most um, four or five in order to, to take the Senate based on the Democratic seats that we're defending. And so those seats are in Arizona, McSally, Senator McSally, in Colorado, Senator Gardner, in Georgia, Senator Perdue, in Iowa, Senator Ernst, in Kentucky, of course, Senator Mitch McConnell, no. in, in Maine, Senator Susan Collins, in North Carolina, Senator Tom Tillis, in South Carolina, Senator Lindsey Graham, and in Texas, Senator John Cornyn.
0: Now, and I will note yeah. that, yeah, and I'll note that Susan Collins is in the mix there. Uh, you note know this on the website. She does not get a pass for her vote for documents and witnesses. Right.
1: That's right. It was a sham vote. So, uh, you know, as a con- former congressional staffer, I can tell you how these things work. And the the Senate Majority Leader, or when I was in the House, it would be the Speaker. They are counting votes. They hold the ultimate goal of making sure that the majority is on their side. But they also know that sometimes these are quote unquote tough votes, that somebody's going to take a political hit if they vote against a popular piece of legislation or they vote for an unpopular piece of legislation. So the speaker, or in this case, the Senate majority leader, is talking his caucus. So Senate. Majority Leader Mitch McConnell was talking to his caucus and was saying, look, we got to win these votes because we don't want witnesses. And I know I'm already going to lose Romney. Romney, it's not gettable. I can't convince him. But I can still afford to lose one or two more. I can still afford to lose one or two more. And so he is, uh, my assumption, allowed Susan Collins to vote against witnesses or to vote for witnesses, I'm sorry, so that she could go back and say, hey, Fellow people in Maine, I voted for witnesses. I did all I could. Look, I'm on your side. But she was not the deciding vote. She knew that her vote was going to have no impact. It was purely a political play. So, no, I I do not think— that Susan Collins gets any credit for this. I think that she did it as a pure political ploy in order to up her chances of, for reelection.
0: Yeah. Well, I think you just give us some insight into what a lot of us already suspected about how the quote unquote sausage is made. So let's talk about the four pronged approach that you have to defeat these senators. The first is building accountability and awareness. How does this
1: work? so this was so so crucial in 2018 i think when people think about campaigns and winning elections often they're thinking about the get out the vote the gotv part of the campaign which happens in the you know the final weeks leading up into november election day and yes you know that's important and we're going to do a lot of that i'll get to that in a sec but before you get there before you're doing anything that has to do with uh, knocking on doors to drag people to the polls you're creating the conditions For the election environment you want. And so in 2018, what we saw was indivisible groups and others showing up outside of congressional district offices, showing up at public events, creating innovative tactics. Like in Colorado, they create cardboard Cory Gardner, a cardboard cutout of their senator who traveled around the state demonstrating how much Cory Gardner himself, the three-dimensional version, did not actually travel around the state, you create an image for these elected representatives that you want to run against ultimately. And that's the stage of the process we're in right now. So building awareness and accountability is about making sure that every single one of Cory Gardner's uh, constituents, every single one of McSally's, constituents in Arizona, Tillis's, Graham's, Cornyn's throughout these states, that they understand that their senator, who maybe they think of as one of the reasonable ones in Congress, their senator just voted against even allowing witnesses. That is something we want to stick. We do not want them to get away with this vote. We want it to be very clear to all of their constituents back home that as much as Tom Tillis or John Cornyn might act as if they're the good ones in Congress. They're really just stuck in the muck, just like all the other members of Congress that are lining up behind Trump instead of lining up behind their constituents. So that's the phase we're in right now. It's a big reason why we launched the Payback Project this week. This is why we launched it, because we don't want to wait. We've got to create those conditions now.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That looks back to what we were saying about how McConnell is hoping that people will forget uh, by election day. And so we're going to make sure that they don't. One of the things that you're doing under this particular prong is to run targeted newspaper ads that people uh, can actually vote on. What are people voting on and what are the, the ads going to say?
1: Yeah, I, I'm excited about this too, because so we, we need to build awareness in general, but also it's we're never gonna win this game just through you know running ads or just through doing the digital work that, that is part of all campaign life. We've also got to build up grassroots power. So we are – we, I, I really love this tactic because we didn't know where we wanted to run the ad exactly. We knew that we have these nine targets. We're open to running it anywhere. And so we put it out to a vote of the Indivisible members, and we're asking them, hey, where where would you like? Which of these nine states is your top priority? Right. Um, and we allowed folks to vote. Now, the point of the ad is twofold. One is to – so we're running we're, – we're, we'll be running at least one of these ads in a major newspaper, in not, not Washington, D.C., not a national newspaper. We're going to be running these in a paper in the in the senator's home state. That's where we're running it. And the point is twofold. One, it's to make it very clear, like I said earlier, that this senator voted against their constituents. We want everybody to know that. That's why we're running these in a local paper, not a national paper. And two, we want to recruit for the indivisible groups in that state. We want verified Coloradans or Iowans or, or folks who are from these states to be joining up with the indivisible groups in that, those states because they are trustworthy messengers in a way that we in at the national level aren't. You, unfortunately, are not in the state that you are. That's not a role you can play. We can talk about other roles you can play, but that's not a role that you can play. I will ask you
0: about that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. We'll get there because there is a role you can play. But folks in Texas, folks in Arizona, folks in Iowa, we need them building up the indivisible groups now. And so we'll be running these ads in order, in part, to drive new members into those groups.
0: Yeah. And that's you're actually talking about the second prong, which is boosting local political power. What are some of the other things that you're going to be doing to help get people involved?
1: So. Let, let's talk a little bit about what what do you do if you're not a Texan? What do you do if you don't live in Maine? What do you do um, if you're not in one of these target states? You've got two good senators, which I know is a terrible problem. You've got you've got senators <laughs> that you will often agree with that you're not trying to boot that right. are voting for witnesses or voting the right way. And so this is something we we have signed up already. Um, uh, I think I'm I'm looking at the stats because they just sent me 20,000 people have raised their action. Uh, that raised their hand to take action this year to the oh, to tremendous. These nine Republicans, 20,000 people. And so those are not only folks in these nine States. Um, we are, we are signing up people to start reaching out to constituents in these nine States. So if you are an indivisible group in Washington or California or New York, or any of these States where we're not targeting a Senator for payback, you can still be part of this and not, not just in the get out the vote um, uh part of this campaign nine months from now. You can be you can be part of this effort right now by signing up. We're, we're going to be giving people texting shifts where they can sign up to go and text voters in Arizona, voters in Maine, voters in Iowa and Texas. We're going to be doing this so that we can harness that nationwide capacity of the indivisible movement and put pressure directly on the target Senate states now.
0: Good. Well, I think that's what listeners here want to hear. And uh, 20,000 is just a great number considering that you just launched. So it's only going to get bigger from there. Uh, that's the, right. the third prong is organizing to win. You're going to be working with local groups on the ground in these targeted states, and you're going to be following their lead. Talk about the importance of that.
1: So we, we've seen this throughout our time at Indivisible that Indivisible National can provide tools, we can help coordinate, we can help provide strategic advice. But when the rubber hits the road, and you you know this, all of your listeners know this, if this is not led at the local level, it's going to dissipate. We are not the right ones to say, hey, here is the precise messaging you ought to be using. Here is the target um, uh, a set of districts that we ought to be engaging in. Ultimately, that's got to come from the local level. And our role is to help funnel as much people power in that and provide the tools and coordination necessary to, to just amp up the pressure more and more. So that Uh, I'm thinking, you know, I just did a road trip through Iowa and then hopped over to Colorado. I was in uh, Colorado for a statewide indivisible gathering, and it was something that was put together um, uh, by the – indivisible colorado action network which is something called i can that's the that's the statewide i love the acronym that's the statewide color the statewide colorado coordinating um uh, committee and that was put together last year with the help of indivisible national we have a national organizer who's a state lead organizer in colorado We hired her from the movement. She's been there for a couple of years now, and she was able to work with the groups to create this statewide coordinating structure. They were then able to work together on this statewide summit. The groups then came together from every congressional district in Colorado a couple of weeks ago to work on their campaign plans for how they're ultimately going to to defeat Cory Gardner. Um, That has to be led at the local level. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to harness the local energy necessary. So that's why everything Indivisible National does, it, we, we, we are really allergic to the idea of parachuting into mm-hmm. a district or a state and saying, hey, you got to do this because Indivisible National is calling. Frankly, I just don't think it would work, but also it would just gut the movement. So we we try to work in close coordination with the groups on the ground because we we think that leads to the best outcome.
0: Yeah. I mean, Indivisible has always been bottom up and not top down by design, which I I think is why it's so empowering. Uh, And then let's just talk about the fourth prong of the Payback Project, which is get out the vote. You touched on this a little bit earlier, you mentioned that the senators you're targeting are mostly in states that thrive on things like voter disenfranchisement and suppression. How do we fight back most effectively against that?
1: Well, I mean, I'd say two things. One, there is work we can do on the front end to uh, fight back against voter suppression directly. We see this in in places like uh, Arizona. We, We ran some statewide indivisible campaigns in Arizona last year against voter suppression efforts. There were several pieces of legislation that were aimed at gutting the early voting rolls in Arizona. And so the indivisible groups there, in coordination with a lot of other pro-democracy local groups on the ground, ran massive campaigns to push back against this legislation, and we defeated a whole bunch of them. There's a great quote from a, an Arizona state legislator that I that I love. Um, he said uh, to one of our organizers, all vote no, just make the calls stop. Um, <laughs> Which is exactly what you want to hear now. Totally. Uh, there, there, so we've run a handful of those campaigns to push back against bad laws that are coming through in some of these states. There are other organizations, Stacey Abrams Group, uh, yeah. uh, Fair Fight, which she started, is great. I love them. I think they're doing good work around the country. And she's a brilliant leader.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, could, so, could not recommend them more highly. Could
1: not. Absolutely not. Yeah, could not recommend them highly enough. And, and she is just incredible, too. Um so uh, there are good groups doing that. We are doing some work on the front end, but the the, the hard truth is that I I can guarantee you they're going to pull some kind of shenanigan out of the hat. They're they're going to pull something and they're going to do their damnedest to ensure that they are able to hold on to power. And in states where they're able to pass these laws, in states like Texas or or in some cases Arizona, because they have a trifecta there, the Republicans are going to do what they can do. And our only solution to that. Is we got to run up the score, we've got to run up the score. If you have as many people vote as possible, then it's it makes it impossible to steal. You've just got too right. many people out. Now we that that sounds maybe overly idealistic. Like like how how can we actually overcome these huge barriers they're throwing up? But what well, we did it in twenty eighteen. We did it in 2018, and that's what I tell people everywhere. Like, Do not lose heart. Yes, I can guarantee you they are going to pull every trick they can in order to win, but we have more people than they do. Right. If we get our people out, ultimately we will win. We built the single largest midterm victory in the history of the republic, the largest midterm margins in the history of the republic in 2018 because we got so many of our people out. Yes, they got their people out too. Yes, they tried to suppress votes all over, but we still won. And we won in places like Arizona. Last year, we won in places like Kentucky and Louisiana and Virginia. What we've shown is that when we organize, we can indeed win and we do win. So that the last piece of this, getting out the vote, that that's ultimately what this all has to come down to. Indivisible, just using our tools, is going to be reaching out to 12 million voters across the country. And that's just using our canvassing, texting, and filmmaking tools. We're also, of course, going to be driving as many people as possible to work directly with the campaign because sometimes it's going to make sense for the indivisible groups just to work directly with the presidential or congressional or Senate. That's great. We want them to do that. Um, As as we lead in to the, the general election phase of this campaign. We want everybody rallying around whoever wins the primary at the presidential level or congressional level or Senate level. We want you rallying around them. And for the weeks leading into the general election, we got to be knocking or sending texts and making calls. That's, that's ultimately how you build a, a get out the vote operation that turns out the millions of voters we need.
0: Well, yeah, I think the antidote to despair is action. And this is just a, a great action plan, as you've laid out. Uh, so I'll just ask you, how can people join the already 20,000 people who have signed up for the Payback Project?
1: Well, please go to paybackproject.org. Um, you can sign up there. Like I said, we are already getting ready to put people on texting shifts where we're able to reach out to uh, progressives in these areas, reach out to voters in these areas and start building up the grassroots force right now, right now, in order to to defeat these senators who voted against witnesses and are voting to shield Donald Trump. So that's something, regardless of which state you're in, you can start doing right now. Obviously, check out indivisible.org and you can sign up for our national uh, newsletters as well, and we'll connect you automatically if you're on our list to events in your area. Every week, we have a system that automatically sends out, "Hey, there's an indivisible group-led event in your area." But most, most, most importantly, you got to get involved with your local indivisible group. This is not a movement that is purely a, a national mailing list, or purely online, or purely about posting your thoughts to social media. As you, as you just said, this is this is a movement of action. What what this movement started as were a lot of people who were distraught and pissed off after the Donald Trump election in 2016, and they didn't want to stay that way. They wanted to feel better. And the way that we all found that we could feel better is by doing stuff, by getting involved. And there is no better way to get involved than getting involved with your local indivisible group.
0: I couldn't agree more, uh, I will say, just because I think I know my listening audience, that we're probably preaching to the choir here, yeah. but if there's if there's anybody out there listening who is despairing and would like to take action, I think uh, the Payback Project is for you. I think Indivisible is for you. Well, Ezra, I will just say, um, I, for one, feel a lot better after talking with you, so uh, thank you for coming on. Thank you for uh, keeping us inspired and focused and for all the work that you do.
1: Well, I feel better talking to you. And this is the way the best part of of working with Indivisibles is talking with Indivisibles, because it makes me feel like we're really building a nationwide movement that's going to change this country.
0: Yep. Ezra Levin is the co-executive director of Indivisible. So, you guys, our next segment is going to diverge from politics just a bit, although it is related because we are going to talk about anxiety, and that is something that most progressives have gotten to know pretty well over the last three years. And it is something that has come up for me my entire life for listeners who may not know I have anxiety disorder, and I also struggle with depression. My guest, Courtney Hammeister, was formerly the host of the public radio show LiveWire, and she's recently the author of a very funny memoir about her experiences with anxiety and OCD. The book is called Okay, Fine, Whatever, and it is just out on paperback. Courtney will be in Seattle on February 12th talking about the book at Seattle Public Library, and she will also be teaching a class on memoir writing at Hugo House on February 11th. Um, I will also mention before we get started that Courtney and I went to high school together. Uh, we even did <laughs> theater together. So I, it's just wonderful <laughs> and strange all at once to, to have you on this show. Hi, Courtney.
2: Hi. Yeah, I know. It's it's that thing where you're living in the past and the present at the same time. And so it's pretty great.
0: Yeah, and you know where the bodies are buried. So. <laughs>
2: I do I have some pictures as well
0: I have some pictures too so you know (laughs) we get the goods on each other Um, yeah so I'm kind of curious to start back at the beginning where you start in the book sort of talking about where your anxiety began uh, because Uh you know it started for me at a, a really early age when did yours start to manifest like the OCD and the anxiety what age were you
2: Well, the OCD didn't manifest until, um, after my father died. Uh, my (laughs) father, let's just, you know what, let's start, let's start off on a bright note, (laughs) Stefan. Um, uh, but, uh, so I was 27 when the OCD, uh, showed up, but, um, uh I really didn't I wasn't aware that I had a thing really um that I had um and I have generalized I was diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder um which is essentially it's just sort of like you walk around with a bit of a low buzzing anxiety Um, all the time. And it then sometimes spikes into maybe you'll have an OCD episode or maybe you'll have, um, a bit of a a panic attack or, um, or an anxiety attack. Um, and that wasn't until I was in my, I think I was my, in my early forties and until I was diagnosed, I think that, um, I, I just thought that that's how life was and that's how people were for most of my life. But I also think that uh, for most of my life, it wasn't as powerful or as acute as it was as when I I began uh, hosting Livewire because Livewire, um, for, those, for those people who are in the Pacific Northwest and are familiar with it, it's a radio variety show and it's recorded in front of a live audience. And so... Yeah. I was in front of you know anywhere from about 400 to about 700 people um, every couple of weeks and that's when it became acute and that's when I became really aware of it
0: well so when you were offered the gig initially did mm-hmm. you think that anxiety and OCD were gonna be a problem or did that kind of manifest after you accepted the gig
2: it was after it was it was actually really it was a it was a couple years into it before the, before I had my first panic attack on stage. And, um, and I think that the deal with those things is that, um, you know, when we first started doing Livewire, we did a show once a month and then we start, and, and it was fine because, you know, I talk in the book about my dread ball um, and the fact that I would, we had writers meetings for the show and about a week before the show um, on Monday. Uh, we would we would start the writers' meetings, and I would um, feel my dread ball show up in my chest. Yeah. and it was like about the size of a you know golf ball ish. and then it would you know progress to the size of sort of a watermelon and And the thing is, um anxiety uh, for many people, one of the things that happens is that you just can't breathe deeply, right? right? Your breathing is very shallow. And so by the show, I talk about how it really felt like I was. In the ball, I was in my dread ball and it was sort of like, and you may have experienced this as a person with anxiety. I may um, have.
0: Yes, yes
2: exactly. <laughs> but you're it's like you're in a hamster ball. It's like the world is sort of muted yeah. um, because because breath is. Breath is weirdly magical in many mm-hmm. ways. I'm not a woo-woo person, and in fact, there's—it's scientific, right? We know that when you take a deep breath and you breathe into your diaphragm, you expand out your belly, and there are chemicals that are released that essentially tell your parasympathetic nervous system that everything is fine right. and that it should calm down. And so, but there's another thing that I believe that happens is imagine—you know—you're sitting, you're talking with someone, and. When you're really listening to them, you're breathing in deeply, you know, because you're calm and you can hear them. And as soon as you start breathing in a shallow way and your brain starts to have that, um, you know, it's sort of – remember the static that you used to get at the end of a broadcast day? We used to call it the ant races.
0: Right, when they Um, signed off. Yeah, exactly. exactly.
2: And there was a sound static as well, that kind of noise. That's what anxiety does to me. That's a great There's description. There's static in yeah. my brain, and it stops me from connecting to people. And it stop. And and I mean, so you you interview people for a living. Um,
0: <laughs> I don't. What, <laughs> I wish I did it for a living. I well, keep waiting yeah, for sorry. George Soros to show up with my check. <laughs> but, yeah,
2: yeah. I, I feel like I, I've sent him like eighteen invoices. <laughs> And you know <laughs> Maybe that's what
0: I need to do. I need to start invoicing the guy. Yeah, yeah
2: exactly. Um, but anyway, part of being a great interviewer is listening.
0: Yeah, and so you know, once the anxiety kicks in, the static starts to take over, and then there is this voice going, "Listen," and then you're telling yourself to listen, and then you can hear yourself saying, "Listen," and it's just just terrible feedback loop, <laughs> exactly. and it's just a terrible vicious cycle, and it's very very hard uh, to get out of. And I, I I actually am getting a little stressed just talking. about
2: <laughs> I'm sorry, but, I mean, no, but no, no, no! Thing. It's it's
0: it's good. I mean, I I feel like. Um, it's something that, you know, we develop coping mechanisms around this stuff, right? We absolutely we become very good at hiding. I mean, from a very early age, I was, you know, I developed a lot of uh, ways to sort of hide my anxiety because, and I think this has to do with like gender role stereotypes. It was just not cool for a boy to show uh, fear. Not I, at I, all. I don't, I don't know what if,
2: were your what were your coping mechanisms
0: that you so, used. Well, so I. Um, (laughs) There were several. I I think when I started having stage fright, my world just progressively started getting smaller and smaller and smaller. So I did—when we knew each other in high school, I was fine. It was only after that that I had a panic attack on stage, um, and then all of a sudden— Was that college or— well, it was between college and, and high school, and I was like, okay, m- then no more singing, right? I can I can do I can do musicals, but I can't do any solos. And then mm-hmm. it was like, okay, uh, no more musicals because I can't sing. I can do plays, and then it was just like, okay, but I can only do plays then that don't have monologues. And then eventually, it's just like, okay, no more plays or anything really where I have to speak in front of people or on camera. And that was when I got into voiceover, and so that was my coping oh my mechanism. God. And it just got to, you know, it's you're,
2: so it's such that. That is such a perfect illustration of the ways in which anxiety shrinks your world, mm-hmm. right? Like, it, it, I mean, it was literally stealing experiences from you. And that's yeah. what my book was about, right? It was about me recognizing that that's what was happening and trying to fight it. But I mean, what if, you know... I, I had friends who, you know, who were in bands and, you know, who were in your exact same position. And it was so frustrating to watch because you saw the joy that they created by by performing. And it was so frustrating to, to see that they couldn't experience that joy themselves.
0: Well, let me ask you about that thing specifically, because in your book, you talk to two other public radio hosts, Luke Burbank, mm-hmm. who is the host of Live Wire Now, and then Ophir Eisenberg, who hosts uh ask me another and they like they legit enjoy performing mm-hmm. and it's clear that they do and what is the difference between people like them and people like
2: us <laughs> Well, I mean, I think that that not having an anxiety disorder,
0: <laughs> <is a big laughs> let's thing, start there. Brass you know? tacks. Yeah.
2: But I but I also and I I and and you can speak to this for yourself obviously, but for me, anxiety really significantly affected my outlook on life. Um, and I I I became a pessimist. It made mm. me a pessimist because it tells you that things aren't going to work out and I think that Um, for Luke and Ophira both. I mean, Ophira told me the story of the first time she ever told a joke um, in a club and she got one laugh and she was utterly elated. She was so excited. And I just said, that sounds so miserable. And she said, I didn't know that person. I was so excited because someone I didn't know laughed at my joke, but and that Luke is bananas because I would have
0: just been obsessed with all the people who weren't laughing.
2: That's the difference between right. Luke and Ophira and us. <laughs> is that you know Luke says you you get these you get these ears where all you can hear are the people who are laughing and you you can't you don't you can't and you don't pay attention to the people who aren't, and I think that. Um, I think that that's, that's the difference. And it's really, I mean, it's, it's sort of philosophical, right? right? I mean, it's the way that they see the world. And, and I think that you and I would say, oh, well, obviously it's just self-delusion. They're deluding themselves. And, <laughs> and I would never want to do that. I want to be honest with myself. But like, who are they hurting by deluding themselves? Truly. Sure.
0: I think they're probably being very honest in their outlook. Right. Sure. They really honestly believe that they feel more alive when they're performing in front of people and don't want to head for the exits and they don't want to disappear. And yeah, yep. so that's kind of the, the, the fundamental difference. And in many ways, I will just say this about us. I think it makes us braver people. There you go. I said it. right?
2: <laughs> no, I think that I say that in the book. I mean, I, I and there there is we we believe that Superman, we call Superman brave. We call all these Superman, all these superheroes, we call them brave. But when you're indestructible, that's not bravery. Right. That's, you know, like you just know you're not going to get hurt. But anxious people, we, we are, we're scared all the time and we still do it. And that's the definition of bravery is, is being afraid and doing it anyway. Right. right. And so so I you know, and, and I know that the word brave is thrown around so much in this world. And 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 certainly as a white woman in the United States, I don't consider myself brave, you know, in I, and I don't
0: I don't either. No, right. but, but, but I get I, what you're getting at.
2: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're we're pretty much OK as as white people, you know, holy crap. You know, I mean, we're we're some of the last people that Trump is going to come for, but he'll eventually come for us. <sighs> <laughs>
0: oh yeah, man! That's so dark. yeah, so so we're going to get into politics. Good, I'm glad because uh, you know it, it is uh, it's a political show. So I'll just ask you, when dealing with anxiety that comes up around uh, the show that is our our politics right now, um, right. it does bring up anxiety. And you know, for people who I think have say normal amounts of serotonin, they can feel the anxiety, and then they can kind of they can move on, they can deal with it, they don't have the, this sort of repetitive thought patterns and things like that. But I'm wondering how, over the last three years, do you find that you have to avoid what's going on politically? Do you engage with it? And if you do, how do you cope with that?
2: Um, I- I think that I, um, I know that I should avoid it and I don't, and I think, I feel like it's become an addiction for me. Mm. It was certainly an addiction, um, you know, during the, during the election and sort of the first couple years, I could not stop. I was just on Twitter all the time and I was writing a column, um, first, (laughs) the first, Column that I wrote was called "This Week in Vaginas," um, and it was sort of like <laughs> a woman's take on the news. Um, and uh, then we changed it to "What She Mad About Now" because because it was pointed out to me completely. I was completely unaware of this that that was trans exclusionary. Hmm. So uh, so we called it "What She Mad About Now," and so I was writing a column about it. So I felt like I should pay attention, but here's the, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm actually trying to write something about this right now. And I'm, I'm having trouble wrapping my brain around around it, but there have been a lot of articles written about Trump making people anxious, right? Like Trump related anxiety, but nobody's really written about what it's like to be an anxious person in a Trump universe. And I think that that's because essentially the question is what happens when your pathology turns into good common sense? Mm -hmm. Like, I was right. I right. was right when I said he was going to win, and then I was right when I said how bad it was going to get. And my and you know, I had an argument with my brother on my brother and I don't argue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like my brother and I are very close, and we had an argument to the point where I cried and I walked out election night because he kept saying, "Stop it. We're we're going to be fine." And I just kept saying, "You're going to be fine. You're a white dude and you're going to be fine." And so living with that, like, um, there's also, uh, a friend of mine was talking about, I think his name is Scott Monroe, and I haven't actually read his work, but he talks about this kindling effect. And what that means is uh, it's connected to trauma and it's this idea that, um, So there are these big five sort of changes, right, in our lives. And it's, you know, things like uh, moving to a new house, a divorce, a death, uh, you know, changing jobs. If one of those things is happening in our lives, we can function and we can go to work and people don't really notice. If two of them are happening at once, that's when the shit starts to hit the the fan and we start to not really be able to function as well. And I think that... Trump for many people, it's as if we're in mourning, and so we can't really take a second thing, right? Like, like that sort of breaks we're us down. We're already
0: on overload. Exactly.
2: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So I think that for me, as far as a like. I haven't found a way to cope beyond like, yeah, sometimes I, I have vodka. Um, <laughs> and, I'm, and, and, and the thing is I am in a place that's very unhealthy and ha- and I have been, I think ever since he was elected, um, I haven't found a way to cope, but I think that, that having that awareness of this sort of kindling effect. And I think many of us need to remember that This is a trauma for us. Like we need to take it seriously and start to treat ourselves as if this is a trauma. And that means things like meditation and getting the hell away from Twitter and getting that, you know, but it's a difficult thing, especially for for those of us who are white because completely understandably people of color say that's your privilege that you can walk away from it. And we Mm -hmm. have to pay attention every minute. Because if we don't, then somebody's going to be at our door.
0: You so. are actually getting into a lot of the things that I speak with. The woman who is the creator of this the trauma stewardship, Laura Vanden Lipsky. and I will just let people know as a preview that she's going to be on the show next week to talk about those things. And I will just say, Courtney, that the column that you're talking about, about being an anxious person— in the age of Trump, I, I think that would be of great interest. And so when you uh, do have that and it's out in the world, um, please let us know and I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll let people know and, and provide a, a link on the website. Um, I want to talk about the column that got you I think was the basis for your book. This was the column that you got offered to write about facing your fears. Yeah. Um, and I will just ask you, because you are something of a public figure in Portland, did you hesitate about open, writing openly about your anxiety when you started that column?
2: Um, I... I think when I, when I started the column, I'd already stood on stage and told the audience why I was leaving, like, or why I was stepping down. I continued to work for Livewire for three years after as a producer and a head writer, but, um, but I'd, already, I'd already told everyone, and I, and I think that, like, I...
1: I why it, did it you decide
0: to do it that way?
2: To tell everybody why I was stepping down?
0: Yeah, well, yeah, to, to talk about anxiety as being the reason for stepping down.
2: Well, I mean, a few reasons. I mean, one is that I have a weird thing that I don't care that people know about my life. And I had a conversation (laughs) with, um, you know, Michael Ian Black is, he's an, he's a, yeah. So hot American
0: summer and, uh,
2: uh, yeah. And he has written some amazing pieces about toxic masculinity and, um, and he's just a very bright person. And, um, I used to work with, uh, the state, uh, the comedy group back in college, and um, he and I had like a, a, a Twitter conversation, which sounds so. I just that I just am such an <laughs> ass just even saying that. But <laughs> but anyway, we had this Proceed. Twitter conversation. You're good. Proceed. Because because he wrote a very, I thought just just for men, he he wrote this memoir where he talked about his body issues, and I think that for a man, that's extremely um, uh, I think that it's, it's, it's an extremely difficult thing to talk about. And, and, you know, I don't want to use the word brave, but it was kind of brave, but, but anyway, what we were talking about was this thing where, about revealing things in a memoir. And, and the thing is, if it's in your book, it's not, you know, how you're in a, you're in a, uh, A relationship an intimate relationship and sometimes you're afraid to reveal things because you're afraid of what's going to be used as ammunition against you later and I know that's a very cynical way of looking at the world but it sometimes happens and the thing is if everybody knows it it's not ammunition anymore like if somebody's like exactly it's just like oh you're so pathetic you were a virgin until you were 34 it's like yeah that's in my book what else do you have because everyone knows that I put it out there So there's something to me about that experience, um, or about, you know, just, just if everyone knows that it's, it's not ammunition anymore, but also I think for me, it was about, first of all, it was the truth. And I think that that is, it's hard for me to just make something up. Um, and also you know my father was bipolar i think that and and he he ended his life um when he was uh about 55 years old and and um and i think that had there not been as much stigma um for mental illness uh when when he was alive i think that he would have gotten help a lot more quickly and um and so part of it is just like this is a thing that I have, you know, if I, if I broke my ankle, I'm not going to be ashamed to tell you that my ankle's broken and I have to take some ibuprofen, you know? So I just want people to see, you know, I feel like bipolar disorder killed him in the same way that cancer kills a person, you know? Um, and so I just, you know, I'm not ashamed of my father's mental illness, and I'm not ashamed of my mental illness.
0: Well, I think that's the right approach. I think it is destigmatizing to talk about these things openly, and ideally, it can help other people who also might be struggling, right?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, and I have to, I have to say, like, um, I understand why people don't reveal it. I think that had I still been hosting Livewire. I think that, um, you know, I I had people come up to me and they're like, oh, my gosh, you know, because I still I still host things. I still perform. Um, It was really the experience of like the three hour experience of Livewire. And frankly, as you've mentioned, interviewing people that Mm -hmm. made me crazy and anxious because I couldn't control it. Right. I couldn't control what was going to come out of their mouth. <laughs> um but but i think had I get out of my head courtney
0: oh my god right,
2: exactly like <laughs> but but i mean but 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 you don't know, right, write as a host your job is to continually with everything that comes out of your mouth continually be reassuring your audience that everything's okay yep. and that you've got shit under control and you don't want them to worry about you. But that's the thing. It's like, how many people have we seen recently who have who have admitted to having anxiety or depression? And these people have done so much. These people are are unbelievably successful in their fields. And that's what I hope changes things. It's like you saying you telling your audience, I mean, your interviews are so incisive and you do so much research and you're, you're so self-possessed. And for people to hear you and recognize that you have those, those underlying issues, I think anybody who's got those issues, who's listening to you, it gives them hope that they can do the same thing. And that's a significant thing.
0: Well, as as we have discussed in the past, uh, we are both allergic to compliments, but I will I will just simply <laughs> say thank you, and and the same to you. And something else that I will say uh, is, first of all, I can't recommend the book highly enough. I <laughs> literally left out loud uh, when I'm reading it, um, it you, you're just an extraordinarily, you've always been a funny person, but you're just an extraordinarily funny writer. Thank and, you. Yeah. And I will just ask, wow. Okay, good. I'm going to take uh, my lead from you in the future. Just say thank you when somebody gives you a compliment. Um, <laughs> yeah. but, so how does, how does hum- without getting too psychological, uh, how does humor factor in with coping with anxiety for you? How, do, how does that kind of fit together? Do you see it as a coping mechanism or just kind of an in, indelible in part of who you are?
2: Um, I think that I think that humor is a coping mechanism for just about anybody who uses it, um, for whatever your your darkness is, right? Yeah. Your particular darkness is, um, and that's. Um, segue into the class that I teach but I but I well I, and, and my... that's a
0: perfect segue because I was <laughs> going to ask uh the the memoir that you're going the memoir class that you're going to be teaching at Hugo House I was mm-hmm. going to ask specifically what you will be teaching so it is a great segue
2: yeah um so it's so the class that i teach the title of the class is mining darkness for light and i think that that we we those of us who who uh who maybe work as as humor writers or are maybe stand-up comics or might do improv i think that those people recognize that humor doesn't come like a um, I have a Mark Twain quote um, and it's so funny because I've been working with this Mark Twain quote for a while and I'm like, I've never really done research on whether he was racist or not. I like, <laughs> should I be using... I should probably find a different quote. But but what Mark Twain said was um, that there was no, there's no humor in heaven. Right? Mm-hmm. It, like, humor doesn't come from light. It comes from darkness. And And there's no humor in heaven because everything works out in heaven. Like... I I asked my classes, like, when was the last time you heard a really funny story about a date that went really well? Right. You never, right? Our our humor comes from our shame and our humiliation and our frustration and uh, yeah, and, and our struggles our and when things
0: don't work out and yeah, exactly. exactly.
2: And and I mean and but that's that's the fodder, right? And certainly we use it as a coping mechanism. Like, how many people have you seen laughing uproariously at a funeral? You know, because they're telling stories about that person and and it's all just a mirror. Um, mm. But I, I think I don't know that I've used humor as a way to sort of cope with my anxiety. I know that I've used it um, as a way to kind of deflect certain feelings, I guess. Mm. Um, but more than anything else, it's it's been a way for me, and this is this is part of what I teach, right? Um, it what's wonderful about using humor is um it helps you to reframe your experiences and that you can if you can find a way to find humor in something you know that you're okay with it you know that you've processed it you know and um if you can figure out a way to kind of so you've had this bad experience let me look at it like a scientist and find all the details that I can mine and then if I can just if I can actually you know, find a, you know, find a funny metaphor for, you know, for this portion of the story. Um, that, and and sort of, and also if you can figure out what you got out of that story, then it completely shifts your perception of that. And and I think that part of the magic of memoir, I keep using the word magic like I'm a guru or something, but, but part of the magic of memoir for me is if you can, If you can find what you got out of a story, if you can find what made you stronger, what made you smarter, what made you like never date a douchebag again or, you know, a guy who like collects teddy bears or whatever, like, (laughs) you know, if you can find that in the story and get something out of it, you've changed your story. And to me, we are made up of our stories. So if you change your story, you're actually literally changing your life. And that's like, I'm sorry, but that's magical to me you know
0: and it's therapeutic and you know in light of everything that we've just talked about in terms of the way that we cope and how coping can be so unhealthy that really is actually i think a a very, very healthy way of, of, of processing all of it.
2: For sure. And and also writing that column, right? That was a that was a humor column. And that is, you know how Jon Stewart would say, I'm never going to change anybody's mind with The Daily Show. The Daily Show is a faucet. Everyone has these feelings and they're like, am I crazy? And The Daily Show is a faucet for those feelings. You watch someone and they tell you you're not crazy and they make these jokes about the thing that you thought that you were crazy for thinking. Yep. And it it just drains your feelings out you know and I think so and so that's part of what I think humor can do for all of those anxious feelings
0: I think that's why we need comedy and I especially think that's why we need political comedy for sure it helps so it does help um we could talk about this all night uh but i will just say uh that your book okay fine whatever now out on paperback is again just phenomenal Uh, i will uh, mention that again you are going to be at the seattle public library for a talk in conversation with Luke Burbank on February 12th. And you're also, as we've been talking about, you're going to be teaching a class on memoir at Hugo House on February 11th. So do all of those things, you guys. (laughs) Uh, Courtney, as you can tell, is just a tremendous and wonderful person. And this has been such a joy. So much fun Um, uh, talking with you uh, on the program. Thanks.
2: Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure.
0: So it is time now for our weekly call to action, and I will just start by acknowledging that I know things feel dark right now. Even though we knew Trump would be acquitted, the fact that it's happened is just, well, it's just hard to deal with. And that's not factoring in the mess that was the Iowa caucuses this week, plus the State of the Union, Rush Limbaugh getting the Medal of Freedom, just on and on. I will point out that there were a couple of bright spots on Wednesday, for one. All of the Democrats in the Senate voted to convict, even those who had seemed kind of squishy, like Joe Manchin, Kirsten Cinema, and Doug Jones. And for the first time in history, we had one Republican cross the aisle and vote to impeach a president not in his own party. That means that Mitt Romney will now be able to do a couple of things in the future. Number one, he can look at himself in the mirror, and number two, he can sleep well at night. I anticipate and I hope that the rest of the Senate GOP members will have a lifetime of being able to do neither. And for particular GOP senators, as Ezra said, we can get some payback. I have already signed up for the Payback Project, and it is very easy. If you have not done so already, please go and sign up. I have the link at indivisiblepodcast.org or... Or you can just go to paybackproject.org. We very much have a role to play in the Senate here in Washington. And I will just put it out there that I think that may matter every bit as much, if not even a little bit more, than defeating Trump. I mean, don't get me wrong, they're both immensely important. But keeping the House and flipping the Senate would create a bulwark if, God forbid, Trump is reelected. Now, this of course, is in addition to the very robust work that we have to do here at home. I have seen many of you setting activist goals for yourselves, this many doors, this many postcards, this many texts, and you are setting the bar pretty high, Carol Killingsworth, (laughs) designating you as our pace car. Listen, I continue to believe fervently in the power of taking action in the face of despair, and I continue to believe in the power of this organization, Indivisible, for many reasons, but not least of which is because As we outlined in our discussion with Ezra, it gets its strength from the bottom up. We're the ones calling the shots. We're setting our priorities. And we're working with each other here in the state and also across the country in ways that multiply our efforts. So for this week, the call to action is first to sign up for Payback Project. Now, also take a moment and email, tweet, or call our Democratic senators who held together. And actually, if you can afford it, Donate some money to Doug Jones. He's going to be facing a very tough race in Alabama in 2020. And then maybe if you're inclined, also drop a line to Mitt Romney. That's a big deal. And this is very important. Take a minute to make sure that you are registered for our first ever Democratic presidential primary in Washington. Ballots drop in less than three weeks. Wow. So make sure that you do all of these things. Because I would like nothing better than for us to take the damage that Trump and the GOP have done to our country, rip it up Nancy Pelosi style and toss it where it belongs in the dustbin of history. And that is it for this week's show. You can find links to everything that we talked about at indivisiblepodcast.org. To get in touch, email us at indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. and is part of the DemCast Podcast Network. Learn more about DemCast at demcastusa.com. Our associate producer is Charlotte Gittleman. Thank you again to my guests Ezra Levin and Courtney Hammeister. Special thanks to Emily Reyes and Emily Phelps. For a special thanks to Lori Colwell. And as always, my thanks to you guys for listening to I'll see you next time.
2: Bye.